Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 29. We're going to cover an example of what happens at low altitude when pilots activate the takeoff go-around or toga switch by mistake. When there's turbulence and a lack of situational awareness, this can be deadly. A number of aircraft recently have crashed because of pilots inadvertently activating the switch, and I'm going to explain how this can happen if you're not paying attention, and if some of the crew are prone to panic. One of the incidents involved a cargo flight, and Herman, who's an avid listener, suggested I do a few cargo plane crashes for a number of reasons. While there aren't any passengers involved, or sometimes very few, it's the cargo itself that is often the danger, and in this case... It's believed there was a failure to check the stated credentials of a commercial pilot, which could have exacerbated the situation that led to the crash involving a Boeing 767 flown by Amazon's Prime Air. The flight was officially called Atlas Air Flight 3591, a domestic cargo flight operating for Amazon Air between Miami International and George Bush Intercontinental Airport in Houston. It never made it in on February 23, 2019, the Boeing 767-375ER crashed on approach into Trinity Bay near Houston while it was on approach, killing two crew members and a single passenger on board. It's also the first crash involving a 767-375ER cargo plane. As you're going to hear, flight crew training issues at Atlas Air and across the U.S. commercial aviation industry have been implicated in this accident. In Boeing 767s, the speed brake levers on the captain's side of the center pedestal slightly below the throttle levers. That means when the first officer is flying, they need to reach to the left of the power levers to grab the speed brake lever, which involves leaning across the central pedestal slightly. The speed brake is left of the power levers, and the toga switches are below them. They're there for a very good reason. If the captain or first officer wants to go around, he or she merely flicks the switch with their right hand if they're a captain, or with their left if they're a first officer. And this is where the NTSB thinks the problem originated. As the first officer passed their wrist beneath the back of the throttle levers to reach the speed brake, and the throttles were at low power, contact can be made with the toga switch. And if the pilot is wearing a watch on their left wrist, which most right-handed people do, then the watch can hit the toga switch and the pilot may not feel it. The toga switches are designed to be activated by the pilot's thumb while holding the throttles, something like cocking an upside-down revolver, if you can imagine that. There are two buttons, and either one can fire up and place the flight computer in go-around mode, automatically increasing the engine thrust and pitching the nose up to climb. The toga obviously is used to abort a landing or in a low-altitude crisis situation. So with all that in mind, it's time to analyze the crash of Flight 3591 from Miami in Florida to Houston, Texas that day back in February 2019. The Boeing 767 wide-body jet was owned by Atlas Air and leased by Amazon Prime Air, and it was tasked with hauling packages and mail on behalf of the U.S. Postal Service. A little background quickly. By 2015, Amazon realized that their delivery service would be simplified by using their own planes and Prime Air was born, which is now called Amazon Air, by the way. Most Amazon goods are shipped by other carriers, but Amazon also leases 51 Boeing 737s and 767s from Atlas Air and Air Transport International, or ATI. These planes are painted in Amazon's colors of white and blue, along with the Smile logo, which we all know so well. 
The pilots are not hired by Amazon, but by Atlas and ATI. 60-year-old Captain Ricky Blakely and 44-year-old First Officer Conrad Asker were the crew, with a third pilot, Captain Sean Archuleta, from Mesa Airlines, in the jump seat. He was hitching a ride after landing his dream job at United Airlines and was heading home to Austin to spend a few days with his family before starting his new position. At 1200 hours 30, Flight 3591 started its descent into Houston George Bush Intercontinental Airport. The weather was partly cloudy, with scattered thundershowers forecast. The crew discussed the turbulence, which was light. The pilots seemed relaxed as they wound their way around the storm cells. First Officer Asker was flying the plane. Captain Blakely was handling the radio calls and monitoring instruments. At 12 hours 36, Houston Approach Control said, the Boeing was at 6,000 feet and descending, and to speed up descent, First Officer Asker extended the speed brakes. All normal. That reduced lift and allowed the plane to descend quicker. Company's standard operating procedure demanded that the pilot who deployed the speed brakes keep their hand on the brake lever so that they wouldn't forget to retract it at 3,000 feet. This is where the first can of worms apparently began. By leaning over and activating the speed brakes, First Officer Asker nudged the toga switch, but didn't appear to feel it. When investigators checked the flight data records later, they found that the plane had been buffeted by turbulence at around this time, and they believed that Asker's watch had hit the toga button. This is just bad luck. But what happened next is a little more complex than just bad luck. The pilot's display is lit up with GA, or go-around, which appears in green, and the flight computer alerts the crew by shining a CMD in green as the aircraft flight display system's status. It's directly above and to the left on the glass screen. Go-around was shining, but none of the crew noticed. The captain was busy programming the flight computer with approach information and talking to ATC, so he wasn't looking at the displays. The increase in power and pitch would have been felt by the crew, but Asker apparently believed the sensations he was experiencing was because the plane was at 3,000 feet and leveling out. But they were still above 5,000 feet. Investigators believe he didn't check the altitude and was relying on the plane flying itself. The engines increased to go around power and the nose pitched up 4 degrees. Aboard flight 3591 the power sensations continued. First officer Asker seemed to notice something was amiss and thought that the plane was pitching up excessively. Again investigators presume this was the case because the data shows the co-pilot controls were suddenly pushed down. Did he check the attitude indicator? We don't think so. Had he done this he would have seen that the nose was raised by no more than 4 degrees and at that speed he was flying somewhere around 240 knots. There was no chance of a stall. Also, had he glanced at the instruments, perhaps he would have seen the GA for go-around in green illuminated on the display. They were in go-around mode, but none of the pilots recognized this, and being so close to the ground, time was going to run out. The Boeing was inside cloud, and the pilots couldn't see the horizon nor the ground, which added to the chaos. Asker then exclaimed, Oh! 
and retracted the speed brakes while Captain Blakely was still punching numbers into the flight computer. Asker had now pushed the Boeing into a steep dive and shouted, Whoa! Then, Where's my speed? Where's my speed? Which is an odd thing to shout because the speed was clearly demarcated on the left of the heading indicator. And his speed was now climbing rapidly towards 400 knots, if he looked. The plane began a dive at over 50 degrees. It was heading for the ground and passed through 5,000 feet in a second. Both pilots and the third sitting in the jump seat were thrown upwards by this aerobatic manoeuvre and the cockpit voice recorder picked up sounds of things flying around. The dive made all of the pilots feel like they were tumbling backwards. Captain Blakely appears to have suddenly realised that things were going seriously wrong. He checked the attitude indicator because apparently he pulled back on the control column to climb. And now the second major mistake. He failed to say, I've got control to the first officer, who would have said, you have control. And this story probably would have been filed in a report somewhere instead of in the NTSB archive. Who has control is drilled into us from flight school, particularly close to ground, while you're flying those tottering and creaky Cessna 172s. But in the chaos of those seconds, the captain responded immediately by pulling back. Unfortunately, Asker was still pushing down. They were fighting each other, and the only winner in this situation is gravity. Thumps could then be heard on the voice recorder as more stuff flew around the flight deck and Asker shouted, We're stalling! Stall! Although the stick shaker was not shaking. The alarms had not gone off, and the attitude indicator showed they couldn't be stalling if they were facing 50 degrees downwards, almost straight towards the ground at this point. Oh, Lord, have mercy myself, screamed Asker. Lord, have mercy, then he said. Ricky, as he appealed to the captain. What's going on? Blakely yelled back. Lord, Ricky, Asker screamed again. What's going on? shouted the jump seat captain, Sean Archuleta. Rick! Asker managed to shout. Then the clacker alarms filled the flight deck as the Boeing exceeded its maximum operating speed. And at that moment, Archuleta and the jump seat figured out what was happening. Pull up! he yelled. CCTV footage shows the plane emerging from the base of low-level cloud. And suddenly, Asker saw the ground and also pulled back on the control column. But they were too late. Oh God! said Archuleta. Lord Jesus, have my soul! Asker screamed once more, and two seconds later, the Boeing, pulling up from its dive, plunged into the shallow water of Trinity Bay at more than 400 knots, around 740 kilometers per hour, its nose no more than three degrees down. It hit the water with such power that the pieces of debris were driven more than three meters into the mud at the bottom of the bay. ATC quickly realized something was wrong. 91, 40, Witnesses watched this take place and called emergency services, who were on the scene in a few minutes. The crew had obviously died on impact. There was nothing left but isolated debris floating on the water. Yes, 1797. Uh, do you have any kind of ground contacts off your right or behind and to your right at all? That's a negative. Right. Three, sir. 36, 35. Just send a main thing. Five thousand. Zero two six one zero. Two ten to be. Two ten five thousand. Intercept. Two six
Foster, 11 o'clock in uh, two miles. is a heavy Boeing 767. All right, there, show 6090. Uh, no, uh, no ground contact from there. Okay, thank you. The National Transportation Safety Board was called and the investigation began. It had taken around 30 seconds from the moment the Togo go-around button had been activated to the moment the Boeing hit the bay. During the investigation, a number of facts emerged and most were extremely damaging, particularly regarding the first officer. We'll get to that in a second. What the crew had experienced was what is known as the Gravito Inertial Force, or GIF. Their sensory systems were being overloaded as their bodies accelerated this GIF feeling, or vector swings aft, as it's called, pushing us back in our seats. Without a visual reference, such as in this incident, our brains can't tell if we're being pushed backwards or upwards. In other words, where our bodies are in relation to where gravity is. The phenomenon is also called somatographic illusion, feeling like you're falling backwards when you're actually accelerating. Asker had sensory overkill and pushed the controls forward because of this sensation, but he had made the cardinal error of apparently not checking his instruments. And now I'm going to explain why he may have failed to take basic actions as a pilot. And folks, it's not a pretty story. But first, a mea culpa. One night, some time back, I was flying on instruments during night maneuvers with an excellent instructor at 13,000 feet in a Cirrus SR-22. A great turbo plane, lovely to fly. Part of the training was recovery from an unusual situation. Hood on, instructor flings the plane around the sky. Hood off, five second response time to bring plane under control. I'm sure aviators listening know this drill. It's pummeled into us like a boxer. And with practice you become adept at ignoring your somatographic faulty body disinformation clock and fixate on instruments. The golden rule is check instruments first particularly attitude and airspeed, then take action. To do anything else is what in aviation terms we call a fail. Repeat fail, and there is a message from the instructor to perhaps consider taking up some other profession, because one day you're going to kill someone starting with yourself. It's easy for me to say this sitting here on Mother Earth with headphones on. I know how wild the ride is when visibility is shifting between clear and poor and turbulence is throwing you about, Try flying in Africa, if you think I'm kidding, and trying to concentrate on aviating towards a point, hitting the wrong buttons, and trying to maintain a sense of decorum while asking the approach politely to repeat her command. But it's part of the job. So what happened here? Attention shifted swiftly to the first officer. The NTSB knew what happened, but why did everything go so wrong so quickly during a standard cargo flight? As we know, Flight 3591 descended into Houston. First Officer Asker accidentally bumped the left toga switch with his wrist while holding the speed brake lever. The acceleration caused a somatographic illusion, which tricked him into putting the plane into a dive from which the pilots failed to recover together. The captain didn't respond immediately because it was a routine moment, and he was punching numbers into the flight computer. Responding 10 seconds after the toga switch was triggered, by then the plane was in a dive, which the captain saw immediately, but Asker was shouting that the plane was in a stall, confusing everyone. Then, when the captain began to pull back, he didn't say, I have control. He was rushing to fix things because the plane was now very close to the ground, so the controls were split until a few seconds from the crash. Why had the first officer reacted like this? What was behind this panicked disposition? The NTSB pulled his aviation record 
and it became clear why Asker had killed everyone on board, including himself, as he panicked in a stressful situation. It wasn't the first time he'd had issues. First Officer Asker began flying in 2008 at Air Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean. It was a regional airline serving scattered islands. And Asker flew the Embraer 120 Brasilia for Air Turks, and over the next 11 years, he would move from airline to airline. In 2011, he was hired by Commute Air to fly the de Havilland Canada DHC-8, but resigned before completing the training course because he failed to progress properly. A year later, in 2012, he moved to Air Wisconsin and began training for the Bombardier CRJ-200, and once again he failed to complete the conversion course, resigning, he said on his record, for personal reasons. Asker, though, went back to aviating an EMB-120 for two years, this time with Charter Air Transport, which flew from Cleveland, Ohio. Two years later, he switched to Transstate Airlines, where he flew the Embraer ERJ-145, but then he failed the check ride and resigned. It was for personal reasons, he said. I'm sure you're picking up a trend here. Let's call that strike two. He then moved to Mesa Airlines, flying between 2015 and 2017, and aviating the ERJ-175, and then he failed a check ride in 2017 and resigned, citing personal reasons. Strike three. He also was trying to upgrade to captain at the same time, but was unsuccessful in that as well. Finally, in July 2017, he was hired by Atlas Air to fly Boeing 767 cargo planes, which he did right up until the crash. At first glance, the sheer number of different airlines on his resume and the unusually high number of resignations would have raised some eyebrows. That means he failed to complete training at two different airlines. So let's dig a little deeper into what happened. First, Asker failed an oral exam on the ERJ-145 at Transstate back in 2014, then failed a check ride with an instructor at the same airline in 2014. Then he failed a line check ride in August of the same year. In May 2017, while at Mesa Airlines, he failed to upgrade to captain. Then in September that year, he failed his Boeing 767 type rating exam due to what the authority called an unsatisfactory performance of crew resource management, threat and error management, non-precision approaches, steep turns, and judgment. That's an indictment. Yes, he underwent remedial training and was eventually passed to fly. When the NTSB interviewed his various instructors, they all said different things, like he over-controlled planes, constantly nervous, he didn't work well with other pilots. He would fly behind the plane and when caught out would panic and hit buttons, they said. His hand flying was weak, and his instrument flying was worse. He had poor situational awareness and didn't seem to understand what his plane was doing, said one. Another said, Asker seemed to think he was a good pilot. Everyone else was the problem. Every time he failed, he blamed the simulator, the instructor, noisy hotels, his piloting partner, his domestic life, hurricanes. The NTSB was stunned. This was the worst pilot report they'd ever heard. Then the smoking gun turned into the loaded missile launcher to mix a metaphor. You see, Conrad Jules Asker had deceived Atlas Air HR when he said he'd never failed a check ride or been forced to retrain. He merely avoided speaking about the years at Commute Air and Air Wisconsin when pressed. The NTSB found out he also lied to Transstate Airlines about failing two check rides and an oral exam. There's supposed to be a system in place to catch this sort of fibbing, but Asker knew how to play the system. There was something called the 
Pilot Records Improvement Act of 1996, where airlines could approach previous employers for the pilot's records, but Asker left two of the airlines off his list, saying he was doing something else. Mesa Airlines then didn't say he failed his upgrade to Captain Merely reported he'd returned to his position as first officer without saying why. They felt sorry for him. If any of these airlines had been told he'd failed checks or upgrades nine times over less than a decade of flying, they would not have hired him, and he knew it, so he lied. So by the time he arrived at Atlas Air to train on the Boeing 767, his home island had been hit by a hurricane, and his training was interrupted by two weeks. His fleet captain at Atlas Air checked his record. Asker added that not only had the hurricane affected his performance, but he had also had a family drama, which made everything worse. I've met many folks like Asker, but never pilots. These people are usually self-absorbed teenagers trying to find themselves under their wispy beards and goth outfits. But there's something else to consider here, and it's the failure of political leadership to install a director at the Federal Aviation Administration. While the process of setting up a proper electronic database of pilots began back in 2009, by 2016, the FAA had still not even begun work on this database. One of the reasons was the U.S. president's refusal to nominate a full-time head of administration. Then the FAA missed another deadline in 2017, just a few months before Atlas Air hired ASCA. Now, we told, this database will only be ready in 2023. Are you feeling any better yet? Meanwhile, pilots like ASCA continue to threaten us as the shortage of aviators following COVID-19 has turned into a crisis. Well, thanks to Herman for the suggestion to talk about cargo accidents. We'll return to a couple in the future. Next episode, though, I have a special treat. I chatted to Jim Spath recently. He had a long and distinguished career at TWA and has written a book called Up, Up and Astray. And believe me, it's an interesting read. Jim's life intersected with many incidents and accidents, as you're going to hear So look out for episode 30 of Plane Crash Diaries with a true soul of aviation. He's a real character. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps increase visibility. If you want to contact me, you can email me through the sites desmondlatham.com or desmondlatham.blog or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Goodbye.